Mark chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, we read, And again, Jesus began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Then Jesus taught them many things by parables, and said to them in his teaching, now pause, With the section of scripture we're going to be looking at this morning, context is everything. It really is. And before we can go any further, it's important to just establish the scene of activity this morning. Please keep in mind, though we are still technically in the second phase, the second of three phases of Jesus' earthly ministry, known as the period of popularity, the transition to the final period, the final third, the period of opposition, has already begun in three fundamental ways. And so please understand, and this is so important to the section of Scripture we're going to be looking at this morning. Jesus is in the period of popularity, but that period is transitioning to the third and final period of Jesus' earthly ministry, a period of opposition. And this transition has begun in three ways. First, Jesus has been officially rejected by the religious authorities in Israel. That's first. Secondly, Jesus' growing fame had become a growing threat to the political establishment. So Jesus had already been rejected by the religious authority. He had already been rejected and opposed by the political authority. But then the third way that we see this transition happening is that the great multitude that was coming to Jesus was becoming hostile and increasingly ornery. We actually get this in the passage that we just read. If you remember, sensing the growing volatility of the multitude, in Mark chapter 3, just a few verses before this section of Scripture, Jesus had already instructed the disciples to do what? He had instructed the disciples to have a boat ready for what purpose? Well, according to the context already established in Mark chapter 3, Jesus wanted there to be a boat ready in the event that the mob, this great multitude, became pushy, demanding, even dangerous. It seems, at least from my reading of this section of scripture, that the contingency plan came to good use. Mark tells us that Jesus got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. And most commentators that comment on this passage often frame this as a glorious time. But with the context already established, I think it was a dangerous time. Now Mark also notes another change in Jesus' ministry in these verses. He says that Jesus taught them many things by how? Well, he tells us, by parables. Now before we begin to examine this new phase of Jesus' teaching ministry, It's important that I make a few simple, subtle, but important observations concerning parables. This is important because most of us end up very confused by parables. As a matter of fact, we often can probably think of sermons we've heard taught based on parables that we later kind of discovered maybe exactly wasn't foundational or factual or true. Parables are tricky things to handle. And so we need to establish two important points before we proceed. First, what is a parable? That's important. The word parable, it simply means to set alongside of. In the case of Jesus's ministry, a parable was a spiritual truth that Jesus would place alongside a word picture, a story, in some cases an illustration. So Jesus would take a spiritual truth and he would place that spiritual truth alongside of a story or illustration that he had already communicated. But please note, and this is where the confusion enters in, a parable was not a story Jesus would place alongside a spiritual truth. And this is the common belief, and this is how parables are often taught, that Jesus would take his story and lay that story alongside a spiritual truth. Well, that's not actually the case. It's the opposite. In many instances, you'll find, and this morning will be an example, that Jesus would tell a parable, 
and he would actually leave out the spiritual truth altogether. He would later explain what he meant only when prompted for a greater lesson. It would be at this point, in private often, that Jesus would place alongside the illustration a greater spiritual lesson he intended to communicate. So just to recap, what is a parable? A parable is something that you lay us alongside something else. In Jesus' ministry, it was a spiritual truth that Jesus would lay aside, lay alongside a story that he had already told. A lot of times, the lesson would be communicated much later than the story was actually told. The second thing that we've got to address when it comes to parables, in addition to defining a parable, we also need to explain what a parable aims at accomplishing, because this is also a source of much confusion. First, the foundational purpose of a parable was not to teach a lesson. The the purpose of a parable wasn't even to communicate a truth. The purpose of a parable was to judge the heart of a person. Think about it this way. The crowd wasn't judging the parable, but the parable was designed to judge the crowd. And let me explain how this works, because I know that might be confusing. Let's say that a person came to Jesus... They came to the shore that day where Jesus is teaching from the boat, and he's going to teach it with a parable. They came, but they came to Jesus with the wrong pretense, with the wrong motivation. They came for the wrong reason. Now, it's true that they would indeed hear a good story, and they would be able to interpret the story in whatever way they desired. They would leave feeling good about the experience, but These people would never really know the greater spiritual lesson Jesus was desiring to communicate because they'd never hang around long enough to find out or to ask for an explanation. You see, a person's reaction to a parable revealed the true intention of their heart. If it became obvious, the people who left prematurely, it became obvious that they were there for the wrong reason And so they would never get the greater lesson Jesus wanted to communicate. However, let's say a person came to the shore that day with the right intention. They came to Jesus as an honest seeker. Their motivations are honest. Their motivations are pure. If they were really there to hear from Jesus and to not just hear a story told by Jesus, they would hear the parable, but they would be unsatisfied with their own interpretation and they would come to Jesus desiring a greater explanation. A person's reaction to a parable revealed the true intention of their heart. If they hung around, if they asked for an explanation, then what became clear to Jesus? That they were there for the right reason, and they were more interested in learning the lesson Jesus wanted to communicate than being entertained or being left to their own interpretation. Now, here's the conclusion to this first point. How a person reacted to a parable revealed the heart of the person listening to the parable. It revealed whether or not that person was a true follower. Now, with this in mind, a parable would also accomplish something else. And this is where things get a little dicey. Jesus would use a parable to conceal the greater spiritual lesson from those who weren't true seekers, while later reveal that lesson to those who were actually there for the right reason. Jesus would use parables to conceal and reveal based upon the heart of the person coming to hear the parable. What a person received from a parable, whether it was a fun story or a spiritual lesson, what they got out of it, completely depended upon the heart of that person. Now, don't forget the context. Because teaching in parables, Mark's clear that it's at this point, when the multitude is becoming ornery, that Jesus transitions his teaching to using parables. And why? What purpose, what function would this serve in this season of Jesus' ministry? With a growing number of people beginning to oppose him, This teaching technique made it easy for Jesus to evaluate 
the multitude at large. A parable revealed how many of this great multitude sitting in the pews or on the shore were really there because they cared to hear what Jesus wanted to say. A parable was an easy, quick way for Jesus to sum up the crowd and to get his answer. Now, Mark continues this narrative by providing a parable that Jesus taught that illustrated, interestingly enough, the greater spiritual lesson of a parable. So to explain in greater detail the whole point of a parable, Jesus teaches a parable. Verse 3, listen or hearken, open your ears, pay attention. This is Jesus speaking. Behold, a sower went out to sow, and it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on the stony ground where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth, but when the sun was up, it was scorched because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up. It increased and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And Jesus said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now keep in mind, Jesus was speaking to a culture that was largely agricultural. This was a story, a picture, an illustration that Jesus' audience that day would understand and there would be even a level of relatability contained in the story. People would get what Jesus was saying. Now to understand the story, you have to keep in mind though some of the agricultural methods that they used in the first century that are much different than our methods today. You see, when we sow seed, we first, before we throw any seed, what do we do? We rid the field of all of the weeds, of all of the debris. We till up, we plow up the soil. And then how do we sow? We sow in very systematic, orderly, efficient ways to maximize production. Now, this was not the way that the Jews sowed seed. You see, what they would do is they would have their field. And they would go and they would just sow seed. They just throw seed everywhere. And then they would come back and they would just till up the soil back on top of the seed. To them, they were not interested in maximizing the production. They were just looking for the easiest way to accomplish the same task. And don't forget, they didn't have a lot of the equipment that we have today. So it's in some ways, it, you lose some seed, but it's an easier way to go about sowing. Now, the story that Jesus tells here describes the normal process and the results of this kind of farming method. Some of the seed was obviously wasted. Why? Because it fell on hard ground. Jesus describes this hard ground as the wayside. The wayside was the footpath. It was the place where the farmer would make his way through the field and thus by the pure foot traffic would mat down, harden down the soil. And so the seed, it was wasted because it was thrown onto this hardened soil, the wayside. It could never penetrate the soil. And thus we're told that it was food for the birds. It was devoured by the birds of the air. Some of the seed was wasted because it fell on shallow soil, the stony ground. It sprung up, but was scorched by the sun because the roots weren't deep and thus it withered away. Some of the seed was wasted because it fell among thorns. And thus, when it tried to grow up, it was choked out. And because it was competing, it lacked the nourishment necessary to yield a crop. Some of the seed, though, wasn't wasted, but yielded a crop because it fell on good soil. Now, let's say, that you were there that morning. You're there on the shore, Jesus a few meters out in a boat. You're listening to this parable. You're listening to this lesson. Let's say you heard the sermon, but you didn't care to know the greater point or the greater spiritual lesson that Jesus wanted to communicate. 
And so you heard this story told, you heard the sermon uh, presented by Jesus, you didn't care what Jesus really meant, and you left. You didn't hang around for the explanation, you didn't ask a question, you just heard the story, you were wowed by it, it was left to your interpretation, you went on your merry way. Now how might you interpret this story? I'm going to steal a direct quote from David Guzik. I think presents this in, 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 a, in a comical way. Let's say you were the farmer. You were there, you heard the story, you heard this, this picture that Jesus, this narrative Jesus communicated, you left. You know, the farmer would have thought, wow, Jesus is telling me. I get it. He's telling me that I need to be more careful with the way that I sow my seed. You know, I guess I've been wasting a lot. And that's not necessarily being a good steward or a good farmer, you know? I'm going to be more careful with my farming methods. The politician who might have been there that day, he would have thought, he's telling me that I need to begin a farm education program to help these farmers find out and discover a more effective, efficient way of casting seed. This might be a big boost to my re-election campaign. The newspaper reporter if he was uninterested in what Jesus really meant, he's just hearing the story, he would have left and he would have thought to himself, he's telling me that there's a scoop here that no one else is writing about. There is a problem in the farming community. You know, I should write an article. This is a great idea for a series in the paper. The salesman, he would have thought, wow, I need to encourage this particular farming method. Because it's going to take a lot more seed than normal. I mean, if, if it word really gets out, there's a more efficient way, then maybe my sales, my profit margin will go, go about. I need to maybe recraft my business model. You see how if you came and you heard this parable, and it was just left to your interpretation, you really didn't care what Jesus meant, how you would have left with your own conclusion, all reasonable, but wrong actually way off the mark. Let's continue. But when Jesus was alone, now check it out. It's very clear that Jesus taught this sermon. He taught this parable. Did Jesus provide the explanation to the great multitude? No. Jesus told the story, prayed, said amen, and people left. People left with their own interpretation of what Jesus had just said. Jesus, once again, throws out this parable, but has he laid alongside a spiritual lesson? Not yet. He will do that only later. But when he was alone, afterwards, those around him with the 12 asked Jesus about the parable. So they come and they're like, wait a second, there's got to be more to this, Jesus. And so Jesus said to them, to you, you might want to just underline those around him with the 12, and then Jesus' response, to you, it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables, so that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven. And Jesus said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables? Now, in these verses, Jesus is building upon a lesson that he communicated to us last week in last week's text. An honest and objective quest for truth will always result in the discovery of truth. However, if you allow your preconceived prejudices to taint your quest for truth, you'll end up arriving not at the truth, but instead with more validity to your very own preconceived prejudices. Jesus is telling us in this passage and through this parable that the truth of God's word will only be revealed to those honestly desiring to know the truth. And as brutal as it might seem, for those who have no interest in a sincere quest for truth, the truth will be concealed. The truth will be concealed. Therefore, parables, and this is what Jesus is saying, 
Parables serve to illustrate the process of how we understand God's word. I don't know if you kind of got this from Jesus' response here, but Jesus is trying to communicate something much bigger than just a story, much bigger than just a parable. Jesus is using this idea of a parable to communicate something bigger, larger, more impacting. How you understand a parable illustrates how a person understands God's word. And first, like a parable, truth, truth must be revealed. Notice that Jesus begins by making a fascinating observation. He says, the kingdom of God is a mystery. And then he says that it can only be known if God provides the key for our understanding. He says, to you, it has been what? Given to what? To know the mystery of the kingdom of God. To you it has been given. Now, there are two approaches to understanding a parable. First, one can interpret its meaning based upon one's limited perspective. Or secondly, one can come to the source of the parable to have its actual meaning revealed or given. And in the same way, Jesus' point is that our approach to truth follows the same process as a parable. First, one's interpretation of truth can be relative based upon one's limited perspective. Or, secondly, we can go to the source of truth to have its actual meaning revealed or given. They came to Jesus saying, we just heard this story We have no idea what you meant. We want to know. And Jesus is like, right on. To you, it has been given. I'll reveal it. You want to know the source of the parable? You come to the author of the parable and he'll reveal it. Or you can just not care, leave it to your own interpretation and go your merry way, but never really know what was intended. Same thing with truth. Truth can be relative based upon one's perspective, or truth can be absolute if we come to the source of truth to have it revealed. Like the meaning behind a parable, please understand truth transcends our interpretation. It's bigger than our interpretation or our perspective, making it absolute and not relative. Truth cannot be discovered. Truth cannot be ascertained. Truth cannot even be stumbled upon. Truth must be revealed by the source of what's true. We live in a culture that wants people to understand and conclude that truth is just simply relative. What's true for you is true for you, that's fine. What's true for me is true for me, that's fine. Even if our two sources of truth contradict, it's okay. Everyone can just believe what they want to believe. There is no truth. I have conversations with people that will tell me there is no such thing as absolute truth. And the easiest, the easiest question to ask in response is, are you absolutely sure? I mean, think about it. There is no such thing as absolute truth. Well, are you absolutely sure? Yes. Then wait a second. You just made an absolute truth that there is no absolute truth. Isn't that self-defeating? Oh, well, well, I don't know for sure. Oh, then why don't you keep studying? You see, we need to realize that truth is absolute because there is an absolute truth power in the universe known as God. And for us to understand truth, it's not based upon my interpretation, but it's me coming to the author of truth asking for explanation, not interpretation. This is Jesus's point. Like a parable, truth must be revealed by the source of what is true. Secondly, like a parable, the revelation of truth or how it's revealed. And this is where things get a little tough here. The revelation of truth depends upon the heart of the seeker. First, we realize that truth will be revealed to an honest seeker. Same way with a parable. Following this parable, 
we read that when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parable. They wanted to know. And what did Jesus say? Well, forget you. No, he said to them, to you it has been given to know. Understand, their sincere desire to know the truth revealed in the reality they came to the source of truth wanting an explanation. They were unsatisfied with their own interpretation. Resulted in what? Jesus providing or revealing the truth. Don't forget, the revealing of truth is always predicated upon the heart of the seeker. For this person, Jesus promises to provide the key that will unlock their understanding. So truth will be revealed to an honest seeker, but then like a parable, truth will be concealed out of respect to those who aren't honest seekers. Jesus says something that's pretty, pretty tough to swallow here. He continues, he says, but to those who are outside, he says, to you it has been given to know the mystery, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables. For what purpose? Jesus says, so that seeing they may see but not perceive, and hearing they may hear but not understand. You know, it really is sad to think that of the great multitude present that day on the shore of Galilee to hear Jesus' sermon, that only a few actually cared to know what lesson Jesus was really communicating through his story. It was clear by their reaction to the parable that there were those that left without asking that they had come under the wrong pretense than an honest quest for truth. And you know what Jesus did? Jesus honored their position by not providing the explanation. He didn't cast alongside the story, the spiritual lesson, to those who didn't come wanting the spiritual lesson. He reserved that only for the honest seeker who came to ask. You see, if the heart is not in the right place, then God will conceal these greater realities. And we can't overlook, we can't dodge the implications of this reality. Why would Jesus allow the revealing of truth to be predicated upon the heart of the seeker? Or maybe the better question would be, why would Jesus ever conceal truth to begin with? Why would Jesus take that approach? I mean, his answer, I'll conceal the reality through parables. Why? Lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. That's, that's heavy. Now, I believe that if the revealing of truth was not predicated upon the heart of the person, and so Jesus that day would have cast along the spiritual lesson with the story regardless of the heart of the hearer. Regardless of the heart of the hearer. That the power of God's revelation would have been so strong that there would, would not have been a man or woman on the shore that day that could have resisted its transforming work. Basically, that if the truth of God was revealed to all men independent of the desires of that man, then there's no man that could resist the truth of God. But then we must ask, is that a bad thing? I mean, would it be a bad thing for the truth of God to go out to all people and then all people, because of the power of truth, automatically respond to such truth? Like, would that be bad? The answer is, is yes, actually. That would be tragic. Please understand, forcing someone into a position they don't want to be in is never a good thing. And it's never something God will do. The people who left without the explanation, they left because they didn't want the explanation. Jesus forcing the explanation onto them would have violated their will. Jesus reserved, he held back the spiritual lesson only for those who came and inquired, who asked, who were honest, who were seeking. 
God didn't force truth upon anyone. It was completely like parables predicated upon the heart of the person. Do you know that God is a divine gentleman who allows mankind the privilege of choice, even, even if man uses this freedom to reject him? That God does this. Now, it's true that I'm a firm believer that God desires all men to know the truth. That he desires all men to come into a saving revelation of his son, Jesus. But understand, I also firmly believe that God will not force this truth upon any man who doesn't want it. That God will not force his love upon the man or woman who really wants to reject it. That God instead wants to draw us to the truth by his great love. That he doesn't want to force his love upon anyone. This is going to be a shock statement. But I'm going to quote Norman Geisler, who I think sums up this concept in probably the most violent and radical way possible. The forcing of love that God is not a spiritual rapist. That God will never force his love upon someone who doesn't want it or who has rejected it. You see, if we desire truth, our passage here tells us that Jesus is more than willing and excited to give it. But if we don't desire truth, but instead want our own thing, what will God do? God will respect and he will honor that position and he will conceal the truth, allowing us to continue with our own prejudices. Jesus' point here is very simple. When it's all said and done, what does it boil down to? What's the key to our understanding? The key to our understanding is our heart. He said to them, do you not understand this parable? This is what he's getting at. And then he makes an interesting statement. He says, if you don't understand this parable, then how will you understand all parables? You see, the parable of the sower was designed to illustrate the greater reality of how we understand God's word. People come to scripture all the time with preconceived prejudices. And they read scripture and they're like, I don't get it. The truth is they don't want to get it. And so Jesus honors that by saying, you won't get it. But for those who come and read and open scripture and honestly desire to hear from God, Jesus, I want you to reveal yourself through this, these stories, because I, don't, I, don't, I can't understand them. Isn't it true that a lot of the stories in scriptures are just that, they're stories? And we often get up here and we do what? We ask God to reveal to us the greater lesson, the greater spiritual truth in the story. I mean, we read David and Goliath. And like after the story, there's not like, like 10 bullet points of the spiritual lessons you need to gain from David and Goliath, is there? No. If we just left David and Goliath from our own interpretation, we'd be like, man, I need to go buy a slingshot. What an effective way of knocking down a giant. That would have been completely missing the point. You see, we ask for the Holy Spirit to reveal to us the greater lessons. God's word is in many ways a parable. And what must happen? Jesus must lay alongside scripture the spiritual lesson he intends to communicate. This is why there are people that you know that look at you and think you're crazy. Because they read these stories and they think it's all made up. It's a bunch of baloney. And they look at you and how your life is being transformed by these words, and they think, it's, they think you're mad. Why? Because the truth has been concealed. It all boils down to the heart of the person. Let's continue. Jesus explains, the sower. Tonight's going to get back to this parable, which illustrates this point. He says, the sower sows the word. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. 
When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. And afterwards, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. And now these are the ones that are sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word. And the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke, or, or literally they press, or they throng, or they overcrowd the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word accept it and bear fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. Now, now Jesus' explanation for what he really means through the parable is much different than what your conclusion would have been without the key to understanding. You see what I mean? Going back to how the farmer or the salesman or the politician or the newspaper reporter would have interpreted the story based upon their own perception or their own interpretation is different from what Jesus was communicating. But we needed Jesus to lay alongside or to provide us the key to unlock the meaning. He does this with the word. The sower is no doubt Jesus. The seed is the truth. The word of God. We're told that the sower does what? He sows the word. And the soil? Well, the soil, the seed is sown upon, is the heart of man. And don't forget, the key to our understanding of truth comes back to a matter of what? Of our hearts. This is the whole point. And so Jesus says that the soil that the seed is sown is the heart of man. And then there are interactions between the seed and various types of soil that Jesus describes to illustrate for us four different responses that will exist in a person's heart towards God's word. First, we're told that there are some that falls on but not in. This is the first interaction between the seed and the soil. Falls on, but not in. And it's called the wayside. This parable described how some of the seed was wasted because it fell on hard ground and never penetrated the soil, and thus it was devoured by the birds of the air. But then Jesus explains. He provides the interpretation. He says, these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown, and when they hear Satan who's the birds of the air, comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. You might describe this person as the hardened heart or the rebellious man. When the seed of God's word is sown. So they, they, they hear God's word. God's word enters their life, whether they come to church or that they have a, a, a Christian witness to them or whether it's simply just a supernatural instance where God communicates them. Seed, the God's word, it's sown onto their heart. Because of the pure hardness of this person's heart that has been crafted by the sheer stubbornness of their will, or the prideful arrogance of their self-perspective, the untempered rebellion that has rooted in their life against God, what happens? It's so hard that it never even penetrates. It just bounces off. It's just scattered and it's left on the top. Therefore, the word falls on, but it doesn't go in, and so it's very easy for Satan to snatch it away. We probably know people who have the hardened heart to the things of God. And no matter what verse you share or how you witness or what logic you bring, you sow that seed and what happens? There's just a hardened, a hardened attitude towards it, a rebellious, rebelliousness. But then there's the second interaction. We're told that some falls on, goes in, but not down. The stony ground. The parable described how some of the seed was wasted because it fell on shallow soil, the stony ground. It sprung up immediately, but was scorched by the sun and it withered away. And then Jesus explains, these likewise are the ones sown on stony ground, who when they hear the word, so they hear the word, they immediately, they receive it with gladness. They get excited. They get pumped up. But 
because they have no root in themselves, the seed only endures for a time. And when there's tribulation or there's persecution, the heat of the sun arises for the word's sake, and immediately they stumble. Now, I just described this person as the, sh- the shallow heart, or maybe better put, the superficial man. When the seed of God's word is sown, because of maybe the initial softening of this person's heart, the seed falls on and it sinks a little bit. It springs up immediate results. There's an explosion, a reaction. However, because this person has refused to allow the seed to sink deep within the fabric of their life, because their Christianity is only but an inch deep, only because it's on the surface, because their faith is shallow, superficial, what happens, the seed is unable to root itself deep enough so that it can endure any kind of opposition or tribulation or persecution. Sad to say, these are people that will respond to an invitation or they'll go to a crusade and they'll walk down and they'll pray a prayer and they'll immediately go home and they're, they're jazzed up and they're pumped up, but they have not created any kind of faith on their own. It's superficial. It's an inch deep. And so when the trial and the persecution of life comes about, these people fall by the wayside. There's a third interaction that some of the seed, it falls on, it goes in, it goes down. This is good. But we're told that it doesn't go up because it's among thorns. Now the parable described Jesus' story described how some of the seed was wasted because it fell among thorns and was therefore choked out and lacked the nourishment to yield a crop. And then Jesus explains that now these are the ones sown among thorns. He provides us the explanation. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in, choking out the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Now, we would call this the crowded heart, or maybe better put, the compromising man. When the seed of God's word is sown, because of the softening of their heart, the seed falls on, it goes in, it even works its way down. But it's unable to grow up. It's unable to yield a crop because of moral compromises. All the other junk sown into the soil of their life, the thorns, They've also been allowed to root themselves into the soil and in doing so choke out the word. And it robs the seed of vital nutrient necessary for growth. The cares of this world rob the seed from reaping its full benefits or its full potential. And then there's a fourth reaction. There are some seed that falls on, it goes in, it goes down, and it grows up. You kind of notice the progression here, right? How Jesus is going through this systematically. And obviously we know that this is the good ground. The parable describes how some of the seed wasn't wasted at all, but yielded a crop because it fell on good soil. And then Jesus explains, but these are the ones sown on good ground, those who hear the word, and then check it out, accept the word and bear fruit. Some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. We would describe this person the open heart. Or the genuine man. When the seed of God's word is sown because of the softness of their heart, the seed falls on, it goes in, it works its way deep, and it grows to yield an acceptable crop. The seed can't be snatched away by the enemy. The seed can't be withered by the heat of temptation. Because much attention has also been given to the soil of this person's heart, there's nothing in the way for its growth and its development. This parable, this parable, it communicates a powerful truth. A person's acceptance or rejection of Jesus and his word, the seed, boils down to an issue of the heart, the soil. That's really, when it's all said and done, the great spiritual lesson Jesus lays alongside the story. I'll repeat it. A person's acceptance or rejection of Jesus and his word, or the seed, boils down to an issue of the heart, the soil. I'm going to close with just a couple observations. We're going to make these quick. 
because I think the story really speaks for itself. But first, I can't help but noticing that the power rests in the seed, not the soil. The transformative power of God, the power which is able to change a life into the image of Jesus, that power rests not in the heart of man, but in the implanted word of God. That there's power in the seed. I read an article of a seed that they dated to be about 3,000 years old that they uncovered in some of the excavations of some of the pyramids. And they took that seed, which was hardened, strong, old, and they took it and they put it in fresh soil, they watered it, and it grew. That a little seed can grow. That there's power there. That why do we teach the whole Bible? Because we believe it's by teaching the whole Bible that Jesus transforms us, that the power is in the word. It's not my interpretation. It's not politics. It's not topics. It's in the word. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart that the power is in God's word. My second observation, though. Though the power rests in the seed, not the soil, it is true that the success of the seed's power is dependent upon the soil. The power is in the word, not the soil, but unlocking the power of the seed, well, it's completely dependent upon the soil. In this parable, we find a wonderful picture I believe of the marriage of God's word and man's responsibility. Sure, the power rests in God's word. Truth rests in the revelation of God. But our attitude towards God's word, our heart towards the truth, it either fosters its transformative power or sadly it restricts it. So the power is in the seed not the soil, but the soil, it determines the success of the seed. We see that from our story. It either restricts it or it unlocks its transformative power. My third observation, though the power rests in the seed, not the soil, and the success of the seed's power is dependent upon the soil, the true nature of the soil is revealed by the end product of the seed. And I think this is probably the heaviest lesson we can walk away from this passage of Scripture considering. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 that you will know them by their fruit. You know, we talk about judging one another. And it's always placed in like something we shouldn't do. It's completely taboo. But the reality is that I'm called to judge. I'm called to even judge the heart of man based upon the fruit produced from the heart of man. How do I know what the soil is? Well, I look at how the seed, what it's yielding, what the result of the seed is. That's how I know what the soil is. You might say, Jesus says in Matthew 7, you will know them by their fruits. But in this passage, he could have said, you will know the soil by what is produced. And so the question I have for you this morning, without me pointing out what it is or what it isn't, Let me ask very simply, what kind of soil are you? You know what kind of soil is in your heart by what's being produced from the word. If you're coming to this church, you're hearing God's word. The result of the word reveals the nature of the soil. So, self-examine. Evaluate. By looking at your life, what kind of soil are you? Are you the rebellious man? Is the soil of your heart hardened to the things of God? Do you come to Bible studies or you do you open scripture? And it's like, it's just bouncing off. And you're sitting there and you're like, this is all 
baloney. This is all bull. I don't believe any of this. This is, well, guess what? What does that reveal? It reveals that you're hard. Once again, an honest quest for truth will result in the discovery of truth. But are you, are you really inquiring? Do you really desire? Where, where's your heart? See, the rebellious man, the hardened man, here's the things of God. They bounce off of him, and he rejects them. But are you the shallow man? Is your Christian faith but a few inches deep? And how will you know that? Well, how do you react when life throws you a curve? See, the quickest way we know whether or not we're simply a shallow Christian is how we respond to opposition or trial or tribulation. Has the roots of the seed, the implanted word, have they worked their way down deep so that the plant can not only bear fruit but can endure the storm? Are you the shallow man? Are you the compromising man? Have you allowed the cares of this world to choke out the things of God. You come and you hear and you accept. It falls on and it sinks down and it goes deep. But it gets crowded out. Like the full potential of what God can do in your life is being robbed. Why? Because you're sharing the soil of your heart with other things. You can only serve one master. And you can only have one God. Are you the compromising man? Or are you the genuine man? Has the word of God been sown in your life? And you've wanted to know the truth and you've come with an honesty of heart and God's word is sinking down deep and it's growing and it's changing and it's transforming you more into the image of Jesus. This is a word for everyone. Because every single one of you is one of these four different types of soil. Jesus actually makes a statement in verse 9. A statement that I find very interesting. Jesus says that he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. And, and last time I checked, I think most of you have at least an ear to hear. Maybe you were in some crazy accident and you lost one ear. You still have an ear. There's a concession for that. It looks as though you both, you have both of them. But Jesus is making, are you listening? Are you listening? I could spend another 30 minutes talking about the, the incredible implications of, of, of this when you get to the book of Revelation because there's seven letters that Jesus writes to the, the seven churches and, and he closes each of them by saying, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He uses almost an exact phrase here. Question is, are you coming to God's word and are you saying, Lord, I just don't want the words. I just don't want my interpretation. I want revelation. I want you to reveal your purpose. I want you to communicate your lesson. I want to hear from you. I just don't want another story. It's all about the heart.